Welcome to Hazel's Story, an epic saga podcast. We're here to dive into the panels and pages of Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples' comic book masterpiece, unpacking the amazing characters, themes, and weirdness in this grand space opera. My name's Abu. And I'm Alan. And Alan, I'm going to need you to defend your stance on this being your favorite volume of saga, because I am heartbroken. (laughs) Okay, so yes, I said before that volume four was my favorite volume, and... I have to admit, I was going through these <laughs> chapters for this episode, uh-huh. and I had kind of blocked out that chapter 22 has basically one of the most intense moments of the whole series, involving something as innocuous as just like a bag of groceries. I know. It, it's so it's so heavy. But you know, before we get ahead of ourselves, let's knock out some quick housekeeping and respond to a really great listener message that we got. So first and foremost, a reminder that This episode is spoiler free, as long as you have read up through chapter 24, which we'll be talking about today. If you have not read the rest of Saga, we will not be discussing anything beyond chapter 24, so no need to worry about spoilers. Also, we love to hear from you, our listeners. So if you have any thoughts, perhaps, or feels about what happens in these chapters, hit us up at hazelstory at loreparty.com. There's two S's in a row there with any thoughts on anything at all, or ideas for future episodes if you've got them. Uh, We got some great listener emails recently, and we wanted to share and respond to one specifically from a listener named Bailey from Seattle, who wrote, My name is Bailey. I'm a huge fan of Saga and a huge fan of your podcast. I love hearing how other people feel about the story and getting to see what other people notice that I missed. I think you two are incredibly insightful when it comes to this story. Aww. I look forward to the podcast about as much as I look forward to the comics, to be honest. Whoa, high praise. Stop. She goes on. I started reading Saga a few years ago when I was living with a friend whose dad owned a comic book store. He would give us copies of stuff that he thought was the best, and Saga made the list. I have been hooked ever since and pick up the issues every month as they arrive and immediately push them onto everyone I know. Oh, my God. Bailey. Wow. Wow. So first off, thank you for remembering the double S in our email, Bailey. It's hazelstory at loreparty.com. You got it. We got the email. Also, there was more to that email that talked about who Bailey's favorite character is and why, but that's technically a spoiler because that character hasn't shown up yet. So we'll have to get to that later. Yeah, for sure. What a cute email. And honestly, I think the true hero in this story is her friend's dad who first handed her Saga and told her to read it because that has now led her here on this journey. I, I don't remember. Do you remember why you read Saga in the first place? I don't remember if someone recommended it or if I just came across it at the library. It's not a person. I was living in Beijing and I didn't have any friends at the time because I had just moved there. And so I got back into reading comics. And just as I was doing that, the only story in the comic book world was that Brian K. Vaughan and Fiona Staples were doing this epic saga and that it was coming out so because mm. like when this dropped it was not like something where people were like oh i wonder if it'll be good the amount of anticipation for saga number one was like off the chains and off the chart wow i did not know that that's so interesting to know well it was superstars right it was sort of like a super group where it was like brian k vaughn who was so famous for having done why the last man and ex machina and then fiona staples was like this up-and-coming artist and it was like this perfect pairing and they also did a really smart thing where they didn't say anything about really what it was going to be other than it was going to be kind of inspired by star wars and then it was going to be really really weird so my experience of coming to saga was just being like oh my god i have to read this because of brian k vaughn and fiona 
What we'd like to know, though, for the rest of our listeners, what was your saga journey? Like, who introduced you to Brian and Fiona's Wild Epic? Yeah. How did you come to it? Let us know. Send us an email, hazelstory at loreparty.com, and uh, we could feature your email in a future episode, just like Bailey. For sure. Thanks for writing in, Bailey. Okay, Alan, let's get into today's episode. The game plan for this deep dive is the same for the rest of our deep dives. We're going to start with a summary of the chapters from today's reading. That's chapters 22, 23, and 24. Then we'll dive into two key takeaways. And finally, we'll wrap up by sharing our favorite panels and our favorite quotes from today's chapters. And we'll jump into all of that right after a short break. So stick around, folks. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. All right, let's get into it. So chapter 22 opens with a very different image than the pin in an eyeball that closed out uh, (laughs) chapter 21. We get this amazing full page panel of some kind of being that has a similar head shape and features as Isabel, but they're wearing Uh a golden crown and what appear to be cosmic roller derby skates and outfit. And I guess is farting slash sharding out the universe? (laughs) while saying oopsie i made a universe just right out of the gate you know you're in for something special with this set of chapters yeah for real forget the big bang theory this is now my headcanon for how the universe was created (laughs) we learn on the next page that this is in fact isabel telling hazel a story presumably the story of the origin of the universe from her own home planet of cleave story time is then interrupted when Clara comes in speaking a lot of blue and we learn that no one can understand each other at the moment because the translator rings are out of range, which means Marco and Alana are both not home right now. Most of this blue is pretty innocuous stuff that Clara is saying, but the last bit is important because she says, I'm starting to worry about those two. And this, whether or not Hazel can understand blue yet, she definitely interprets the emotion correctly and understands that her grandmother is worried about her parents. Rightfully so. Totally. We immediately find out why Clara is worried in the next scene, where Alana is at work, acting in a fight scene with some sort of sea monster and her co-actors from the open circuit, but she forgets her lines, so she ad-libs with the line, quote, never worry about what other people think of you because no one ever thinks of you, which is an amazing line from one of D. Oswald Heist's books that Prince Robot actually read out loud to Heist when they were like hanging out before things got real awful in the lighthouse back in chapter 12. The line goes over well with the audience, but when the scene ends, Yuma, our costumer friend, is furious because she is worried that someone from the audience will recognize the Heist line and use that to find Alana, Marco, and Hazel. And it ends up that Yuma was right to have that concern because our buddy Upshur, the journalist, was in the audience, seems he's a fan of the open circuit, and he's got a little look on his face like he knows what's up. Mm -hmm. But 
a little hazel narration shifts us away from that back to the robot planet where prince robot the fourth is standing in front of his wife's casket in some kind of cool robot cathedral my man is also clad head to toe in a fire funeral fit yeah his usual uniform has been replaced by head to toe black and he looks he looks dope yes all black everything he's looking great second only to his dad king robot (laughs) who enters we get this full page spread of just the biggest like dual page yeah like 8k wide wide screen like king robot garbed in like royal clothes and everything and this exchange between father and son not exactly pleasant we actually find out that the king's favorite son is apparently already dead Mm -hmm. more about that later in the takeaways and that prince robot the fourth's wife will be buried next to his brother we also learned that the king doesn't necessarily have much compassion for some of that war trauma and war PTSD that Prince Robot the Fourth has been dealing with. And thus, he actually bans Prince Robot from going after Dengo because he doesn't want the prince to ruin even more of this relationship with the Landfall Coalition. Then he uh, pixel teleports away or something. No explanation for what happens here, but it's amazing. I love that his scepter is basically like the mother of all universal remotes. And he just yes. like pushes some <laughs> button on it and then does basically the thing from the TV kid from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory where he just like beep, 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 and like vanishes, which no explanation for how or why. But apparently that's how he gets around. Yeah. Incredible. I want that. Out of nowhere... Our boy Agent Gale shows up, also in all black. He's also got the funeral fit going. And he tells Prince Robot the Fourth that Landfall actually has transponders on all Robot Kingdom ships because they don't trust even their own allies. And so he actually knows exactly where Dengo is, or at least where the stolen ship is. Mm. This scene then wraps up with Gale and Prince Robot the Fourth standing out on a balcony overlooking the Robot Kingdom. And... I loved this panel because it kind of shows us this very stark contrast between the royalty inside this castle and what kind of looks like a slum right outside their door and them sort of standing distant from it up on this balcony. Yeah, the way that Fiona has painted maybe this like landscape in the distance looks a whole lot like what you would see on Earth in like shanty towns and slums outside of capital in, you know, cities where there's an autocrat who has taken all the wealth and all of the people have nothing. Yeah. So excellent world building there just from one scene. I love it. So then we cut back to Alana getting dropped off at home on a dope motorcycle, which I've just (laughs) noticed has like blue (laughs) laser wheels, but still looks like a Harley, but with laser wheels. <laughs> She's getting dropped off by her co-star from the open circuit who offers her some more fadeaway quote for the road because she's high though. She doesn't notice that Marco has been standing there with the groceries watching this whole exchange where she is handed and then takes fadeaway. And so then he says to her, quote, "So you do drugs now? That's new." Uh this Sends them into an argument that escalates very quickly into a fight, as often happens when one partner is impaired. And Alana reveals that Marco has said Ginny, the dance teacher's name in his sleep. So she wants to know who the fuck is Ginny, which is clearly a deflection away from him asking her more about her drug use. Marco then, for his part, deflects that by 
saying point blank to Alana if she's ever been high in front of Hazel. And when she sort of tacitly admits to that, Marco loses his cool and chucks the full bag of groceries right at Alana hitting her in the chest and spilling what looks like baby formula or pink yogurt or something all over her outfit. Alana then, with tears in her eyes, yells at Marco to get away from the house. Marco immediately recognizes that he's super fucked Uh, up. Yeah. Alana is not having it, screams at him to leave, and the scene ends with a cutaway shot of Clara and Isabel having seen the whole scene from up above, and a last final panel of baby Hazel asleep in her little crib with some Hazel narration saying, I guess I'm not sure what to say about all that. Words are harder than they used to be. Ugh. Yep. Gut punch after gut punch. I'm going to talk more about that exact quote later, actually, because that's what I picked for my favorite quote from today's reading. And you would think this emotional high is where the chapter ends, but nope, we cut to the broadcast studio next, where our open circuit friends are leaving for the night after a long day's work. As they get out to the parking lot, they run into our boy Dango pointing a gun at them. And one of Alana's sort of meathead-looking castmates tries to get all manly and broy in Dango's face, and Dango shows them that he means business by literally blowing the guy's head off Ugh. in an absolutely gruesome set of panels. He then turns to the gargoyle stage manager person and repeats his request, get me on the air. I have a message that I need to get out to the universe. And the stage manager says that they can't get them on the air right now. And Dango shoots them too. Dango then, of course, turns to the last person left standing, who is Yuma. And in a moment of panic, Yuma basically offers Dango something much bigger than the airtime that he wants. And it's on that cliffhanger that we end this chapter. So much packed into literally just one chapter, one 22-page issue of this comic book. Also, I love that we're left on this full page panel with Yuma having dropped her paint buckets, which is some sort of magical mystical paint that like holds its form in the air. And you're like, I don't know what you do as a set designer or how any of it works, but it seems very cool and I want to know more. Yeah. So many tiny, tiny details like that with the gargoyle person being made out of stone and the frozen paint. Love that Fiona is just having fun with so many of these scenes. Oh yeah, things that could just be like nothing, they could just be literal background are instead more room for headcanon, more room for just interpretation. It's it's all so great. So then on that huge world altering cliffhanger, of course we'd pick right back up with that in the next chapter, chapter 23. No, 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 <laughs> no, never. This is saga, folks. Nope. So instead we pick up with a full page panel of Ginny standing in her doorway, long t-shirt, band t-shirt, no pants, just all bad news, yeah. saying, we presume to Marco, why am I not surprised to see you? <laughs> Ugh, Mar- Marco then says some total bullshit about like, oh, I wasn't sure where else to go, which just like, I don't know, man, you have plenty of places to go. You know, even on this backwater planet, I'm sure there's inns or hotels or something. Right. Make better choices. I have a whole lot to say about this later on. For sure. There's a reason he's here. And we all know why that is. She does, however, let him in. And she, in fact, offers for him to stay the night. 
and we get some really great Hazel narration here. Quote, a lot of people who came into my family's life looking like heroes ended up acting more like villains. And then in the next scene, the narration continues and says, I wish I could say the opposite was also true, but that was pretty fucking rare. End mm-hmm. quote. And this next scene is actually a shot of Prince Robot the Fourth, who has found this crashed landfallian ship that Dengo stole. And he's searching through this like horrific scene of all the crew being dead and finally comes upon a dirty diaper, which is actually a good sign for him because that confirms to him that his son is still alive. And I love this, again, the mixing of the mundane with the mystical, that like there's all of this magical super technology, but like diapers are still just like presumably like little nappies. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> right. right, like you have laser wheels, but you're still having babies like sit in their own shit. But all right, fine. Yeah. Fine, great. (laughs) There's a nice scene change cut from Prince Robot's screen face with a sunrise because he knows that his kid is alive to Dengo's screen face with a question mark on it. And we're back in the scene with Yuma who has explained to Dengo the whole story about Alana and Marco and Hazel. And he doesn't believe it. He thinks that this story is whack, it's interesting. He can't get through through the propaganda he's been fed that somebody from Wreath would possibly willingly procreate with yeah. somebody who is one of the oppressors, right? He's like, no, no, there's no way that somebody from Wreath would like lay down with someone from Landfall because they hate them all so much, which again points to why this union is so powerful in the world of this storytelling. Whether he believes the story or not, he does ask Yuma why he should even care. And Yuma breaks it down that, oh, this is the reason why this is so important because you as your sad sack rebel, like getting on TV and being like, oh, the poor people of, you know, robot planet are oppressed, that nobody's going to care about that, which sadly is probably true. Yeah. And what people will care about, though, is something with sex in the message because a kid means sex. And if there's proof that somebody from Landfall, in fact, did have sex with somebody from Wreath, people would definitely care about that and the proof of the story is hanging out in a rocket ship treehouse just outside of town he clearly does not think that she can help him and just doesn't actually seem to care about anybody and just wants to murder so yeah he shoots her with his blaster but does decide it's worth it to check out the story so he heads on out to the outskirts of town to try and find them and speaking of the outskirts of town at the rocket ship tree isabel comes out to see if alana is, is okay We're at the scene immediately after her and Marco's fight. And they actually clash a little bit. They have a difference of opinion on what just took place here. Mm. Alana explains to Isabel that she's triggered because her dad used to hit her mom. And what Marco just did to her, she considers to be assault. Isabel also points out that Alana has a bit of a drug thing going on that she's not acknowledging. But... Alana deflects once again and says that Isabel doesn't get it. Alana was a soldier. She has seen some shit in this war. She has nightmares all the time about it. And in one of the most impactful moments personally for me, Isabel turns that right back around and claps back, pointing out that uh, she's a ghost with half a body because she died in that very same war that Alana is talking about. And this seems to rock some sense back into Alana and kind of ground her. We also learn in this scene about Isabel's ex 
girlfriend and how she still dreams about her ex. It's a tough scene. We're going to talk a bit more about it in the takeaways later today. Pretty powerful stuff. When she claps back, she just says like, are you seriously trying to educate me about the costs of war? You realize I'm fucking dead, correct? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which is just such teen sass. And also a thing that we never really acknowledge about Isabel is that she's this like, you know, sassy, like fast talking jokester. She was killed by a landmine, which is one of the most awful ways for a person to be killed. Her whole bottom half was blown off. And we learned that there's even more tragedy tied up in it than we thought because she was like a young teen in love for the first time. And all of that was ripped away from her. So once again, everybody has their trauma and they're all carrying it around all the time, even if other characters aren't aware of it. For real. So we then cut away from that, although not before Alana makes sure to eat the last you know, dose and a half of fadeaway that she has. Of the Hershey's kiss. Oh, right. The fadeaway. Right, right, right. Right. (laughs) (laughs) We cut right away from Alana eating fadeaway to Marco sitting on the sofa with Ginny. And there's a series of panels that is, I don't know, like straight out of a rom-com where it's like wide shot of them sitting on the sofa, then close up on each of their faces as they lock eyes and make what in German is called Schlafzimmer Augen, which means bedroom eyes. I still remember that from freshman German class. <laughs> what? <laughs> it was like one of those phrases that my German teacher taught us that was like Schlafzimmer Augen. And we're like, what does that mean? He's like, oh, it means bedroom eyes. And we were like, what the fuck are bedroom eyes? But there you go. That's what bedroom there eyes you are. Go. It's when you make Amazing. those like sweet, dreamy eyes. And then they almost kiss. But Marco at the last minute sees something on the coffee table, which is Hazel's doll, Punk Conk. And Marco knows that Hazel will not go to sleep without Ponk Honk, so he's shaken out of his whatever lust, horniness, whatever was going on. He jumps up, and Ginny tries to get him to stay, calls him Bar. He reveals to her that that's his dad's name. All of a sudden, he's flooded with shame, and he's like, fuck, I got to get out of here. And the last thing he says to her in this amazing final line as he leaves is, thank you for teaching my girl to dance. Good to see Marco back. What a relief. We then immediately cut back to what happens when Hazel doesn't have Ponk Kong at bedtime, which is for her to cry very loudly and scream Ponk Kong's name over and over and over. (laughs) On brand. Too real. No one else really knows what this means or what she's even saying, because it's clear to us by now that Marco has been doing a bulk of the parenting. And this is when Alana breaks down. She's overwhelmed by all of this, and she starts sobbing and says, quote, I just, I am so messed up. I hate my job. I miss my family. I miss my husband. I want everything to go back to the way it used to. But before she can finish that thought, she gets cut off here because the intruder alarm starts going off in the ship because Dango has broken into the treehouse. Isabel tries to do a scary illusion to scare him off, but as we know, that doesn't work on the robots. He sees right through her. He scoops up Hazel and starts threatening her with a gun. But before anything can escalate further, Alana tells the rocket ship tree to blast off, which knocks him on his ass. And in this really dope panel, Alana makes like a full-on dive, flapping her wings, and scoops up Hazel just as she is about to hit the floor. This sets off an intense series of panels. Clara starts fighting with Dengo, Ripping one of his fingers off, which is kind of gross, but cool to see. With her mouth? (laughs) With her mouth. (laughs) 
Does is does it just taste metallic? Like because they're robots? <laughs> don't unclear. 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 <laughs> but basically, by the end of this intense series of panels and pages, we end up with the rocket ship tree having blasted off into space and Dango with a gun to Clara's head in control of the situation and telling the crew, you are going to tell this ship to go to the exact coordinates I tell you to, or people will get hurt. And then literally in the next panel, you get some hazel narration. There's a lot of very meta hazel narration in these chapters because in the next panel it says, but it's not the end of our story, which is like almost, I don't know. I, I just, I love it. You get this panel of just the most forlorn Marco staring up into the sky as he watches his family fly away while he's got Pong Kong in his hand. Super sad. And then Yuma shows up, something about being a coward. Marco doesn't know what she's talking about. We clearly do. But before they can talk about it anymore, we get the final panel of the chapter, which is a full page panel. Prince Robot in all of his black on black finery, hand cannon pointed right at the camera, clearly believing that everything that's happened so far that's bad in his life is all Marco's fault. And he says, I should have known you were behind all this. And that's the end of the chapter. Wow. Our characters are colliding, folks. <laughs> in the best and worst ways possible. Now, chapter 24 starts off in a completely different place with one of the cutest characters in this entire series and my personal favorite. We join Gus, the humanoid seal walrus shepherd man, as he's holding Clara's golden battle axe. And we quickly realize that he is speaking to the Will's sister, the Brand, who is asking Gus what his name is. And we get this little cute little exchange back and forth where he's like, my name's Gus. And she says, Goose? And he says, nope, Gus. And then she responds with, I thought that's what I just said. And this... We have to sidebar here for a little bit because we on this podcast have always called him Gus. Right. And this panel implies that perhaps it's more of like a like a goose. The goose is like, right, like the umlaut is pronounced like German or something. Yeah. And that's why when he yeah. says, and then sh she thinks it's the word goose. We had a previous episode where I referenced this clarification and was like, I don't know. I don't want to like change up how we say this but i've come back around on that i'm like well if, if like brian and fiona took the time to make a whole panel to clarify how to pronounce the dude's name should we adhere to that i don't know what do you think i think the same actually now that we've reached this point in the story and that name clarification is so obviously there right i think we should honor how brian and fiona intended it so i've always said gus in my head which now that i'm saying out loud doesn't seem right anyway so right. Goose, I think, is what we can we can move forward with saying. Goose it is, which is fun, because you get to say it kind of like the Swedish chef from the Muppets. Oh, hello, Goose. <laughs> Moving on. So we learn in this conversation after the name clarification that the brand is looking for the will and has a photo of him that is just so perfect because he's got yeah. hair, but he's just like so surly while drinking what is, appears to yeah. be a whole bottle of whiskey but like in a pint glass and he's just like so cranky that someone's even taking his picture it's the only picture that that his sister has of him and the brand is looking for him clearly uh gus has never seen the will before so he doesn't know but he does reveal that he met 
Alana, Marco, and Clara, and that Clara traded Goose her battle axe, which Goose now adorably calls a chopper, <laughs> for one of Goose's giant walrus dinosaur things that was named Frendo, uh, who we've seen for the last many chapters on the rocket ship tree. Yeah. So now we understand how a giant walrus thing ended up on the rocket ship tree because Clara bartered, apparently, this giant animal for the chopper that Goose needs to fight off the bone bugs, which were kind of a big scary deal when they first landed on Quietus, but now seem to just like not be around anymore, which I guess is, yeah. you know, anyway. Maybe they're seasonal. <laughs> yes, bone bugs are seasonal, <laughs> like most insects. Sure, totally. Right. <laughs> the brand asks Goose if he's ever seen the Will's ship, you know, if figuring maybe if Goose has seen the other people, maybe he's seen the Will ship. And Goose replies by saying, oh, yeah, I've seen that before, but it wasn't piloted by the Will. It was piloted by someone who Goose says is lady folk, tall girl with dark skin and real big horns. And who do we know like that? Immediately, we cut to Gwendolyn, who is in the middle of, I don't know, searching through some files in what yeah. reminded me of a big warehouse storage type place, totally straight out of Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark, like the place where they take the Ark at the yeah. end of the movie. Totally. Befitting that theme, she immediately has some patrollers who stumble upon her. Uh, apparently, there's are the guards of this government facility or whatever it is. And on brand with the Raiders of the Lost Ark, because they're kind of like Nazi-esque pig rat officers. Like, yeah. they have these like very brown shirt Nazi uniforms on, but they look like pigs, but they're also rats. And we get a series of very awful, awful things that come out of their mouths as Sophie is continuing to search through these files for something and Gwendolyn is kicking the shit out of slash killing all of them. At the end of the series of panels of Gwendolyn being a badass, one of these terrible monster creatures is not dead, however, even though one of his eyeballs is dangling out of his head, Ugh. which is fucking gross. gross. And he then proceeds <laughs> to threaten to rape both Sophie and uh, Gwendolyn, which is fucking awful. Yeah. Luckily, uh, Lion Cat appears, looks terrifying, and we're left to kind of figure out what happens next because we cut away to the outside of the warehouse where the brand appears on the scene via Crash Helm portal and recognizes the Will's ship just in time for Gwendolyn, Sophie, and Lion Cat to come out of the building with Lion Cat carrying the dangling eyeball patroller's head in her jaws, which, okay, <laughs> figured out what happened there. Yeah, it's okay, Alan. It's good for her teeth. <laughs> I love that line, <laughs> which is just like, you know, chew toys are good for cat's uh, teeth, apparently, and she's going to yeah. chew on this skull. I don't know. There's a lot of slapstick gore in this chapter, and I kind of love it. Yeah, it's, it's cute. Uh, what isn't cute is the confrontation that quickly takes place here. The brand immediately starts asking Gwendolyn why she's wearing the Will's cape and why she has his lance. Lion Cat gets defensive, which forces Sweet Boy to shoot out his little knockout dart things at Lion Cat. And Gwendolyn then responds by trying to lance the brand, who you wrote in our script cuts the lance in half. But now that I'm looking at the panel, it looks like she opens a portal for the lance oh. to just go through and miss her entirely. You're totally right. That makes much, much more sense. So she has the ability with this crash helm to open portals. Yeah. And so she pulls some like dope portal jujitsu yeah. by opening a portal that just eats the lance. That's even better. Very cool. Very cool. Everyone 
kind of takes a moment to breathe here after all of this intense back and forth and actually try and talk things out, figure out what the heck is going on. We learned that Sophie and Gwendolyn are actually here at this warehouse building to find a formula for an elixir that can heal the will. And the reason they had to like fight those gross Nazi pig guys is because the healthcare syndicate, whoever that is, are protecting their profits by keeping this formula under wraps. They don't want people getting better too quickly, which obviously is an incredible shot at the US healthcare system, which is objectively awful. Once they've sort of talked out the situation and have an understanding, the brand decides to join them on their mission, which totally isn't a quest, Sophie. And they realize that the next planet they have to go to is a place called Demimonde. And what they're looking for on that planet is... (laughs) Is dragon semen. Sure. This scares the brand, not because of the dragon semen part. That's totally fine. But because this is actually the planet where the stock is from, the Will's former girlfriend. And I love that we get this little panel where like Sophie doesn't even know who that is, which I appreciate, right? I genuinely appreciate this because the brand knows who the stock is and is scared as fuck of her. We know who the stock is. We know the stock is dead. The brand doesn't know that, I guess. But then there's this last panel where both Sophie and Gwendolyn look at each other and Sophie says, the who? Because they don't know who the fuck that is. So I appreciate yeah. that there's some acknowledgement by Brian in the writing here that like we have this omniscient, you know, top-down view of who all these characters are, but not all these characters know each other. Right, we get totally. A couple more quick scenes to finish out this chapter. One of them is just to remind us, I guess, who the stock was. A pretty intense sex scene between the will and the stock, which which is interrupted only by the stock saying something about wanting to have kids with the will that like totally throws the will off. And then the stock gets like kind of upset about it and just kind of storms off. And we're left to wonder like, oh, is this part of why they broke up? Before we can do that, we realize that this is a dream. And in fact, it's a coma dream that the will is having while he's still hanging out at his hospital bed. We also get another little shot at the US healthcare industry there where we find out the only reason that the will is continued to be taken care of in this hospital is because he has really good health insurance, which kind of makes sense for freelancers. But then I'm like, well, wait, health insurance through who? And then I remembered that, oh, I think at some point we talked about a freelancer's union. So right. clearly the union of freelancers <laughs> negotiated good healthcare coverage for them because they need it. Amazing. One, one point I wanted to make about this scene, actually, I don't know if you picked up on this, but this scene to me reminded me a lot of a very long time ago, that sex scene between Marco and Alana, where she's like, basically like tells him to finish inside her. Oh, shit. I forgot about that. And the parallel here to me is really interesting because for Marco and Alana, that was like a very intensely sexual, romantic, amazing night of sex. And here for the brand and the stock, it's potentially like a literal reason why they broke up and definitely a reason why they at least didn't finish having sex here. Like the stock just kind of walks away and it's like, I'll take care of myself. It's fine. You're totally right. Just, Just two very different kinds of relationships, but very similar situations. Well, and just like character development about both of them, right? Like you learn that like the will clearly has something about children, which has been an ongoing issue with him, right? There's a reason why he adopts Sophie. There's a reason why he has to get her out. He's clearly terrified or has some probably childhood trauma that he himself suffered. So the idea of being a father scares the shit out of him. And it didn't scare the shit out of Marco. So yeah, that was like excellent. I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah, just reminded me of that scene. Yeah, let's wrap up this chapter because we revisit Goose 
who is back on Quietus, just chilling with his chopper. <laughs> Apparently, he carries his chopper around with him everywhere, which is great and adorable. Yuma suddenly appears and starts asking him about Frendo and about the psychic connection that Goose has with his animals. The reason she's asking is uh, because when we flip to the final page of this chapter and the final page of today's reading, we get a full page spread of Marco with sword and shield in hand standing next to Prince Robot IV asking Goose for help in finding their families. They need to track down Frenda, who's still on that rocket ship tree. And that's it. That wraps up volume four. So many of our main characters have split off into these little splinter groups, which sets the stage for what's to come next volume. I just love that we don't even get any exposition for how Marco and Prince Robot the Fourth got from Prince Robot the Fourth wanting to murder him and thinking it was all his fault to them now being like joined together. Clearly, it took a little while though, because Marco is now bearded. So, yeah. like, it's been long enough that Marco's grown out a beard. And something happened where that sword and that shield that he's carrying used to be on Ginny's wall. Right. Something happened where he was like, I need to get a sword because he can't use his own sword because he destroyed it. Right. So, mm -hmm. We know all of this must have been something tremendous in order for him to pick up a sword again, but also to make amends with Prince Robot, all to try and find his family. Yeah. And we know that Brian and Fiona love to play with time in this way. Right. Where we always sort of jump around with time and then get that information later on at some point. So love to see that we're wrapping up this volume and this chapter with another little time skip. And we'll just have to figure out how our friends got to this point in the story. Totally. Speaking of time, we have been talking uh, about these chapters for quite a long time, <laughs> and we're going to take a quick, quick, quick break, uh, but we'll be right back for our takeaways, favorite panels, favorite quotes. Stick around. All right, friendos, welcome back. Let's now get into our two takeaways from today's reading, and then we'll wrap up the episode by sharing our favorite panels and quotes. So for takeaway number one, Alan, I wanted to talk about some of these little character details that we learn all throughout today's reading and actually all throughout this volume. They're small, they're subtle, but they're so impactful to our understanding of who these characters are and what their motivations are. Mm -hmm. So first and foremost, in chapter 22 today, we learned that Prince Robot IV had a brother named Duke. We touched on this a bit in the summary when King Robot informs the prince that his wife will be buried alongside his brother, who, quote, was a true champion of this realm, end quote. And that little, like, almost throwaway line tells us a lot. We can assume that Duke was maybe also a soldier, like Robot the Fourth is, and presumably died on the battlefield. And it's obvious that King Robot had a favorite son. This very much reminds me of the uh, Boromir-Faramir <laughs> oh, totally. relationship from Lord of the Rings. Like, there's obviously, like, this golden boy favorite older son, and then sort of, like, the, the one that lives in the shadow. And it's yep. clear that Robot the Fourth is the brother that lives in the shadow here. I think learning about Duke also really puts a lot of 
Robot the Fort's actions and perspective all mm-hmm. throughout this story so far in all of these chapters, I couldn't help but kind of feel bad for the guy because he's clearly out here just trying to desperately win his father's approval in any way that he can and to also live up to what was obviously an outsized legacy of his dead brother. Mm-hmm. It's tough stuff. Like this sort of like family dynamic is unhealthy in many ways and it doesn't help that they're all royalty as well sure it's the sort of thing you go to therapy for and not spend months on sextillion (laughs) do you know that meme abu that like men will do x just to avoid going to therapy yes so (laughs) men will spend months and thousands of credits on sextillion just to avoid going to therapy for real for real i loved getting this detail about robot the fourth though again it rounded out his character so much Later, in a small throwaway line from Alana, we also learned that Marco apparently doesn't eat burgers, which raised a lot of questions for me, because I don't know if it's been established in the story at all yet that he's vegetarian, or does this just mean he's like a very picky eater and like it's like an anti-burger specific thing? I'm not sure. But to me, it seems pretty on brand for Marco to be mm-hmm. the kind of guy who would feel bad about eating animals and go full vegan. Yep. And uh, ultimately, this is just a bit of a throwaway line, but the purpose is to tell us that Marco has never done drugs and has probably never even smoked a cigarette. He's a straight-laced guy. When I saw this, I also was like, have we ever seen any of these characters eat? I don't think we have. <laughs> I think that's just a thing that they like haven't taken the time with because there's been too much else going on. But like, yeah. what is food like in this world? No idea. That's such a good point. Such a good point. Hopefully we'll see that later. We also get two big revelations about Alana in today's reading. And I want to spend a bit of time on these. When she's speaking with Isabel after her fight with Marco, we learn that one, her father was physically abusive toward her mother, and that two, she still has nightmares from her experiences in the military. And I loved these details because recall how we know Alana had a strained relationship with her dad Mm -hmm. and how we know he was remarried from that iconic photo (laughs) from the wedding so good well now we have some more insight into that we know that this abusive relationship this physically abusive relationship is maybe part of the reason why her dad's first marriage fell apart and is definitely part of the reason why she's not exactly a huge fan of her dad and then the detail number two that we learn about her nightmares is so interesting as well, because up until this point, I don't think we've really gotten a sense of what Marco and Alana's military careers were like or what mm-hmm. they experienced from the war. Right. And here we get like a pretty direct answer to that. Alana saw some stuff that she's still carrying with her today. She's got that same war trauma that we know Prince Robot the Fourth is dealing with as well. Well, also, if you remember how they first met too, right? Alana like cracks... Marco in the face with her rifle butt like it was nothing, which we have to assume that's not the first time that she did that. So maybe, you know, her trauma is less like Prince Robots where it's battlefield PTSD. Maybe her trauma is the shit that she had to do while she was a prison guard, right? Yeah. Who knows? But it definitely helps provide some more context and you start to get to put the pieces together. Yeah, for sure. That's such a great point. Also in this same conversation, we got to talk about Isabel Mm. because we learn about Isabel's ex-girlfriend, Wendy, from before her death. This was really tough for me to read because Isabel, next to Goose, Isabel is probably up there as one of my all-time favorites in this story. And just to learn that her final thoughts and her final moment after stepping on that landmine when she knew she was going to die were, quote, damn, 
I will never feel her breath on my neck again. End quote. That is heartbreaking when you remember she's still just a teenager. And this girl was probably one of the first loves of her life. It's also a huge gut punch when in this scene, the ghost of a dead teenager is telling adult Alana, quote, yeah, life is complicated, but it's also very fucking short, end quote. <laughs> and she turns around and floats away. That's a tough lesson to get from the ghost of a dead teenager when you're still alive and well and just got in an argument with the love of your life. It also points out we don't really know how old in like years, years right. as a ghost Isabel is, right? Like as a teen, she died, but like maybe she's like decades old. We we have no idea. I also would just like to point out that those two lines that you just said would make one hell of a set of lyrics for like the most badass emo song. Um, <laughs> just like, I will never feel the breath on my neck again. Like just, it's a sing-along chorus. Uh, Fall Out yeah. Boy would carry that and make it right. truly- right. Truly well, iconic. My Chemical Romance is back. I'll pitch this to them. We'll see <laughs> if they can do something with it. Totally. <laughs> now, continuing with our details that we're learning about our characters, the next character that we learn an important detail about turns out to be Hazel herself, because we learn that she can't go to sleep without Ponk Conk, <laughs> which the more I'm saying that out loud, it sounds fine in my head, but Ponk Conk is such a weird phrase to say out loud. <laughs> oh, it's so absolutely a thing that like uh, one and a half, two year olds would say, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't be like two separate words. It's essentially all one word. It's Pong Kong. Yeah. I want Pong Kong. Oh, you're so right. Pong Kong. <laughs> it, it's cute. There's not much to say about this detail, but I just thought it was very, very cute. And, you know, I, I related to Hazel because I also had a favorite stuffed animal growing up. He was a rabbit who wore overalls. His name was Rabbity. Anyway, let's move on from that. Well, I, I would also just one other tiny detail about that that I feel like is really real for any parent is yeah. that moment when your kid won't go to sleep and is overtired and there's one panacea that will like make them feel better and you can't find it is one of the oh, most panic man. inducing moments that you have <laughs> as a parent because you're like, fuck, I just want to go to sleep. And it actually is a really realistic trigger for Alana to have like sort of the bottom of her addiction, right? Like she's like, she breaks down because of that sheer like just frustration and panic of her daughter wants something, she can't find it. And there's an extra element of just like shame from she doesn't even know what it is. So yeah. it's like, it seems it's all like all of these things. I don't think it's a tiny detail at all. I think it's like so crucial. And it also just shows like when you have a small child that's around that age, anything even as mundane as a stuffed toy becomes so important because yeah. you're dealing with the emotions of a tiny monster. <laughs> Yeah, that's such a great point. And uh, as usual, there's so much to say about all the tiny details in Saga, even Ponk Kong. <laughs> Continuing with our trend of tragic character revelations, we actually learn that Dengo's wife left him after the death of their son as well. And look, I'm, I'm not out here. I'm no like Dengo apologist. I'm not trying to excuse any of his actions in these past couple of chapters, but... It's clear that Dengo has been through some absolutely heartbreaking stuff, the kind of stuff that you can understand would break a person. Mm -hmm. And there's no excusing the bloody rampage he's on or just the dis indiscriminate shooting of random people he's doing or the child kidnapping, but you can at least sympathize a little bit and understand where he's coming from. It's clear he's been through hell and something in him finally just snapped. And so those are some of the de details that I picked out. And while 
again, like Punk Conk, they can seem like small sort of throwaway details that don't add much. When you think about them, it just adds so much to the world building and to the characters, making them that much more well-rounded and relatable. And the part that really sticks out to me is this is just what good writing and storytelling looks like. Even our villains, like Dango, are worthy of our sympathy. And that that's just one more reason this story is so, so good. So that, that was my takeaway. That's takeaway number one for me, is all of these little details that I picked up on throughout today's reading that add so much to the world and characters. Yeah, I, I clearly was loving all of these as well, loving them so much that my takeaway is kind of similar. So my, my takeaway <laughs> is that in addition to the small details, there's the kind of broader idea that all of these characters are fully formed, like round, never flat. They're like full beings that exist yeah. and they're like very complicated. And one of the devices that you've pointed out that they use to illustrate that is these tiny details. Uh, I loved all of those that you pointed out. Another one that I loved from that set of chapters is the little like aside about why and how Brand can use Arethian crash helm, which is because she yeah. apparently quote, did a few years of grad school on Reef, which <laughs> I want to know what that means because there's a whole right. lot of intonation and explanation and do they have assassin grad school? I very much want to know but also it's another one of those great moments of like blending the mundane stuff from our world with the magical saga world anyway this is one of the devices where brian and fiona are showing us that all of these characters are like real and fully fleshed out and none of them are one note and none of them are gonna fall into like any of these sort of like traps that can happen i feel like a lot with sci-fi and fantasy of like oh this character's the rogue or this character's the hero or whatever yeah. all these characters are fully formed and one of the ways we see that in addition to these tiny details in these chapters is that all of these characters are capable of making huge mistakes just like mm -hmm. big giant mistakes with huge consequences just like in real life marco after this awful moment between he and his wife happens which like that's a mistake in and of itself but he then compounds that by running off to Ginny's house and almost cheating on alana and that's the reason why he actually didn't make it back to the ship in time to help Alana fight off Dango. If he hadn't rolled up on her house, if he'd just kind of like milled around and then eventually gone back and not like spent time drinking tea on her couch, yeah. he might have made it back in time to fight off Dango or something like that. So right. bad choice, go to Ginny's house. Consequence, you lose your family. That's like some real character shit. And then there's also this interesting element of characters making the same bad choices over and over again that gets brought up. So Prince Robot IV gets very clear instructions from his father, the king. So remember, that's not just his father. That's the king of the realm. When the king of the yeah. realm gives you an order and you don't follow it, that's treason. And you could be put to death for it. But he can't listen. Agent Gale comes up and is like, well, I happen to know where they are, which Prince Robot IV immediately jumps on it. He's just been told to stay in his room and let everybody else handle it, but he can't. He makes another bad choice to go off on another crusade to avenge his wife's death and rescue his child, even, he, even though he knows it'll further fuck up his position within the household and endanger kind of everyone. And then there's this kind of meta commentary on character development itself as a thing that Brian adds in chapter 23, where after we think Isabel like gets through to Alana about how drugs are fucking her up by being like, yo, you know I'm dead, right? And that Alana is kind of sabotaging her relationship with Marco. But 
Alana still goes ahead and takes more fade away anyway. We get this Hazel narration that says, quote, in the open circuit, characters are supposed to have arcs where they grow and evolve over the course of the story. But mom always thought that was nonsense. In the real worlds, <laughs> people never change that much. Grownups anyway, end quote. And it's just so perfect. Oof. Because yeah. it is true. It's one of the things that storytellers do is they have their characters go through arcs and develop because it furthers the narrative. But a lot of times in real life, especially once people have gotten to adulthood, they're pretty set in their ways. And that thing that happens in stories where people go through like, you know, a hero's journey or something and completely change who they are, it's much less common. And I think you're seeing that in this story, the way that these characters make the same mistakes over and over again. They're not presented yeah. with some sort of like magical learning moment. And then they're a totally different person. And I, I just love that so much. Just to finish this up, we also get characters realizing things about themselves that they didn't know. Like Yuma is faced with death from Dango and immediately sells out Alana, Marco, and Hazel. Tough look. Just like right away. And then only after she's shot does she understand that she did that and that it's wrong and why she did it, which we get in her like mumbling to Marco, quote, I never knew what a coward I really was. So uh, all of that, these just like little tiny one lines that give us more about these characters, who they are, what their motivation is, and ultimately how all of these adults are kind of fully formed in their fucked up and they need to learn to live inside <laughs> it. So I don't know. I, I loved wow. it. Wow, can I get a tattoo of that? <laughs> Fully formed, in, fully their formed fucked up in my fucked up edness. Just learning to live inside it. Hashtag just adult things. <laughs> That's, I, 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 we, we talk about this a little bit here and now, but you and I both are people who have therapists and talk to them about stuff. It is a thing that I yeah. started talking to my therapist about as I get to 40, which I'm turning this year, that like, there's some things about myself that are just how I am. And like, Changing yeah. them is not an option, but learning to operate within them is a way that is much more healthy. Totally, anyway, totally. this is not the <laughs> Alan and Abu therapy hour. This is uh, about a comic book. So let's turn to our favorite panels from this set of chapters. It's my turn to cheat and not pick just one panel. We should probably change this segment to not be panel, but panel or series <laughs> of panels. For me, the most amazing art in this set of chapters has to be that sequence that we talked about that goes across two pages after Alana has the rocket ship tree start to take off. Yeah. And we get these nine panels of just perfect action. It's like the pinnacle of how this medium can show motion and action through a series of totally static panels. They're movie storyboards, basically. So we get them in order. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to describe them because I love it so much. You get a cl yeah. this close-up low-angle shot of Dango with Hazel as the ship starts to rumble. Then you get the context with the exterior wide shot of the tree blasting off. Then you cut back inside to this off-angle medium shot of everybody falling. Like the panel is literally off-axis, so you get the idea that everybody's falling down. Yeah. Then we get this close-up tracking shot. So it's not really a tracking shot because it's static. But in my head, this is the one in the anime where you'd have all those. You watch more anime than I do. I don't know what the like zippy lines thing is called where like, you know, <laughs> yeah. where, where like a character like flies towards another character and you get like all of the fierce lines like you'd get that yep. here yep. in the anime. Then you get the medium shot of Dengo reaching for his gun after he's recovered, which is immediately interrupted by this close up of Clara's cane just like cracking into Dango's face screen. Yeah. And you you look over to Clara's face and she just has this 
fierce look of fucking rage because you're like, oh, right. (laughs) Clara is the warrior and she is going to fuck this guy up. Then we get a wide shot. I always call these check-in shots that like a whole action scene is happening. You're like, wait, what what is everybody else in this scene doing? So we get this check-in shot of our other three characters as Isabel, Alana, and Hazel. So we know that they're okay. And then we get back to this close-up of Dango with his hand on Clara's rage face trying to keep her off of him. And the last shot of this sequence is this extreme close-up of super Clara rage face literally tearing Dango's finger off with her teeth. <laughs> and I just like... Incredible. Even just describing it, I've got goosebumps. And I just, I have to shout it to the rooftops. Where is our animated adaptation of this series? Yes. Where is it? These panels want to move. You've written storyboards for something that wants to move. I think we might just have to animate it ourselves, Abu. How are you at drawing? <laughs> Terrible. But, you know, we'll work on it. Kickstarter coming soon. That's a great set of panels. Mine is a little less action heavy, but I think equally intense. Because the panel that I went with for today's reading is that final full page spread of chapter 24, that last page. Because apparently Prince Robot and Marco are dropping the hottest album of the year. Watch out, My Chemical (laughs) Romance. Like, I cannot believe that these two dads can pull off fits like this. We already talked about how Prince Robot IV is looking mean in that all black. But Marco, he's got the beard going. He's got that slick green jacket, the black pants, the black boots. With, of course, the shining golden shield and sword that he presumably got from Ginny. Prince Robot the Fourth, of course, in all black. He got the Luke Skywalker glow up. He mastered the Force. Now, something in all seriousness that we haven't talked too much about yet on this podcast is just how good Fiona is at drawing costumes and clothing. Mm-hmm. Every character, every planet, every creature that we've come across in this story so far wears garb that either speaks to their culture or their personalities. Mm -hmm. And that's no small feat to make such distinct, recognizable outfits for our characters and creatures that inhabit this world. I mean, just think how iconic something like Han Solo's jacket is, right? Mm -hmm. Like you see that and you immediately know what that is and where it's from. I also love how there's a little detail that like Prince Robot only ever wears one of two outfits. He has his non-morning outfit and his morning outfit. I presume because robots don't sweat, so he doesn't have to change his clothes. (laughs) That's a good point, too. The lore goes so deep, (laughs) y'all. Now, the last thing I want to say about this panel is beyond just these two men looking so good and so badass, the implication of this final panel is just as shocking as all the sex appeal. These two mortal enemies are now apparently teaming up to save their families. And that sets up such an exciting arc for the story that sets up some exciting possibilities for volume five. And I can't wait to dive in. Yes, like you're, you're right. I hadn't even thought about it as like an album drop, but like it does look like an album cover for like <laughs> a very badass indie rock duo from like 2012. Absolutely. It's not Florence in the Machine. It's Marco in the Machine. Wow, that's incredible. That should be a meme. (laughs) All right, Alan, let's wrap up today's episode with our favorite quotes. You go first. All right, so there's a lot of amazing sort of side 
reference lines in these set of chapters. And the one that I picked is almost sort of a throwaway line. But when we're speaking of character development, I absolutely love that when Marco first sees Yuma again, after he's seen everything he loves fly away into the sky, he says, quote, you, you're the one who sold Alana drugs, aren't you? I knew it the moment you gave me this ridiculous haircut. We never should have let you into our... And then he's cut off because Yuma starts mumbling because she's like injured or whatever. But just Alana refers to Marco as, quote, an arrow when she's talking to her like other druggy coworker, which is obviously meant as some kind of like straight as an arrow. He's a square. Yeah. He's a normie. He's an L7 right. weenie, right? <laughs> and here we see that like his norminess extends even to hairstyles, which I'm guessing he's referring to the fact that Yuma is the one who gave him his like blonde, bleach blonde lock thing. Yeah. And like, we get it, right? Like Marco was basically raised on a farm, a grasshopper farm or something. Right. So he doesn't trust all these arty types that, you know, Alana's gotten involved with. And you get in this one line that he's the type of person to, in this case correctly, suspect someone of being up to something, being a drug dealer, based on the type of hairstyle they would prefer. And yeah. he's also right. They shouldn't have ever let Yuma into their lives. She sucks. She's irresponsible. She's selfish. And she sucks. But yeah. she was necessary for them to get their job. And so they agreed to go along with it. But yeah, this it's a, another one of those things that illuminates so much in just one little tiny line of... I knew at the moment you gave me this ridiculous haircut. We never should have let you into our... <laughs> and even just like you can feel the way that he would say the word drugs would just be so square. He would just be like, yeah. you're the yeah, one who yeah. sold Alana the drugs, aren't you? <laughs> just like a little bit of too much emphasis on the word oh, drugs, you know? The drugs. Like... <laughs> you're so right. It's also just like a funny line, right? It, there's a lot of emotions in these chapters, a lot of ups and downs. Yep. But this is just like a moment of levity in all of this. I burst out laughing when I read this. Because, yeah, it's such a like square thing for him to say. You you gave me these blonde highlights. How dare you? Like, well, and you also, for me, it's a tiny bit of the interplay between Brian and Fiona. Because, you know, Fiona probably, when she was sketching out what Marco on this planet was going to look like, she was having some fun. So she like, you know, drew him with blonde hair. And I'm guessing that Brian was like, what the fuck? So to kind of make fun of that a little bit, he writes this line about how it's a ridiculous haircut and how Marco would think it's a ridiculous haircut. I just, I, I love every part of that, that like yeah. you get the interplay between the creators, you learn something about the character, the writing that literally brings all of this more to life. Yeah, for sure. What about you, Abu? What was your favorite quote from these pages? So I want to talk a bit about that Hazel narration right after Marco and Alana's fight, because this hit me like a truck. Quote, I guess I'm not sure what to say about all that. Words are harder than they used to be. End quote. Huh. Literal tears. Like this scene, and then the way it ends here on Hazel's narration, literal tears in my eyes as I was reading this. It's, this entire scene is just so painful, but the sort of period to the end of this ex this extremely painful sentence is Hazel's just total lack of commentary. Mm. We know from Hazel's sort of sassy voiceover that she is not the kind of person who would not have something snarky to say about a situation. But this is one situation where she doesn't really have anything to say. It's just the ultimate putt. It's just the ultimate gut punch. Mm -hmm. And 
once again, I find myself really relating to Hazel because uh, being a person myself who grew up in the not most functional and loving family, like, yeah, you never forget a single fight that your parents ever had, especially the fights that you witness as a young child. Mm-hmm. Like, those are seared into your skull forever. And Hazel puts it perfectly that there are just no words to explain the fear and the pain and the confusion of that moment and what moments like that leave with you for the rest of your life. Like these chapters are just full of gut punch after gut punch, but this is the one that just got me the most, just based on my own personal experiences and but also within the context of this story and of this family that we are rooting for. We are rooting for them to win. So this entire volume four arc of watching them drift apart and then finally be separated at the end is extremely painful to watch. Like an incredible volume start to finish, but one of the most painful story arcs of this story thus far. It's intense. And I just want to say, folks, therapy, not sextillion, okay? (laughs) Yes. I mean, I'm going to just say that there are definitely some sex workers that operate as therapists for some of their clients. Like, I think that's a thing. Oh, for sure. Probably better to have a more direct relationship with a therapy professional. You've got some (laughs) stuff to work through. We have run well long on this episode because I think we had so many feels about everything that happened here. But just to let you know, we're back on a regular schedule now and we're loving it. We hope you're loving it too. Up next in two weeks will be our quick react episode for the new chapter 59, which you should, of course, only listen to if you're all the way caught up. But I'm just going to throw it out there that these new chapters that are coming out monthly are so fucking good. So, oh my gosh, yeah. If perhaps you, as somebody who's reading along with us for the first time, were interested in like binging or reading ahead, remember, you're totally allowed to do that. Read ahead, read through volumes five to nine, maybe in all one sitting. <laughs> Go ahead, <laughs> catch up. Your local library almost certainly has the volumes in paper form or in digital form through some sort of ebook reader app. I personally just experienced this with my uh, local Brooklyn library with another comic that actually has the word saga in the title, the Vinland Saga, which is a yeah. manga with like 400 pages per volume. And because I don't have room in my apartment for that many manga books, I've been doing it all through the Brooklyn Public Library's Libby app, and it's great. So a plug for libraries, a plug for binge reading comic books. Come on, catch up with us. You can listen to all the episodes. Yeah, for sure. And then go back and reread the chapters when we do these deep dives. Makes it that much more enjoyable. And of course, speaking of deep dives, our next deep dive episode will be next month. So make sure that you have at least read up through chapter 27 before that point. That is the first half of volume five. We're jumping into the next arc of this story, and I'm so excited. All the pieces are in place, our families are separated, and we'll have to see what happens next. All right. Well, friends, two minds can sometimes improve the odds of a podcast survival, but there are no guarantees. So leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and or Spotify, and be sure to check out the other shows on the Lore Party Podcast Network at loreparty.com. You can also follow our network on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Music on this show was composed by Lawrence Kelly, who makes all kinds of amazing music. Thank you for listening. And remember, podcasts are fragile things. But just like Alana, Marco, and Hazel, we'll all just keep on exploring and learning 
together. Or at least not together temporarily for now. (laughs) They're separated. It's so awful. (laughs) 